0: The Biblical Foundations Bible Study Online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com Taught by Chris Martin This course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. Continuing our study of the life and teaching of Paul, and we're slowing down this, this Sunday because 1 Corinthians 15, I think, is one of the most important passages in the whole Bible, and for me, for reasons which you'll see as we go through it, it is a transformative text. It is the reason why I am still a Christian, and I'll tell you that story at the right time. To set the stage for all of this, it's a fascinating concept of life after death. And what fascinates me is in human culture, every single human culture that has ever been discovered has a concept of life after death. It is incredibly unique because the rest of creation can't contemplate the future. Your dog, your cat, your horse, your monkey, your dolphin, whatever it is, lives in the moment, has no ability to contemplate the future. Human beings have a unique ability to contemplate the future. The humanist realizes that and says, what an amazingly unique aspect of evolution. The Christian sees that and says, Genesis 1, we're created spiritually, emotionally, mentally, in the image of our creator. That makes perfect sense. But to the humanist, it creates some amazing speculation. Since their worldview uh, limits life after death to that which can be speculated, You've got this image that's just... Uh, uh, just fantasy of what people speculate it is. With a lot of cultures uh, mimicking the American Indian view of the happy hunting ground uh, in the 20th century, a phrase I hear in legal circles is the great golf course in the sky. Uh, a lot of Christians think that we, are, we become angels after death, and it's a very misguided view. And of course, when we think about God, we've got to make it one of our Hollywood favorites, uh, George Burns, uh, Morgan Freeman, or even Whoopi Goldberg and a host of others that have played the Almighty. But what is really, really fascinating to me about this whole study is that for the Christian, it is not a matter of speculation. It is not a matter of faith. It's a matter of historical reality. And the greatest takeaway from this lesson is that not only is it individually transformative, and that's critically important, it is historically verifiable, and as a result, it is different than every other philosophical thought about life after death that has ever existed in the history of humanity. So, we're going to cover that this morning. But I got to give you a little bit more background into why this was a big deal for Paul. This is not just saying, hey, this is a big deal, don't forget it. This was threatening. To fracture his churches that he started. The reason why I put on your outline is the Greek concept of dualism. Starting with Plato, the philosophy of Greek uh, created this idea of the, the higher realm and the lower realm, or what I put on your outline is the sacred and the profane, or the sacred and the secular. The sacred were those things that were spiritual, that were mental, that were philosophical, that would be items of the heart, whereas the sac- or the secular or the profane would be those things that are physical. So the idea to a Greek or someone that had Greek culture was the idea of a resurrected body is profane. If the body is stinky, smelly, dirty, dying, degrading all the time, then why would you want that in the afterlife? The Greek view of the afterlife was these higher things totally separated from the body. So their idea of a bodily resurrection, whether it was Christ, whether it was us, whether it was anything, was repugnant. In fact, in Greek culture at the time of Paul, it was referred to in the Greek schools as the doctrine of the swine, the doctrine of the pigs, because the idea of that level of dirtiness and filthiness and in the mud is what they thought of trying to elevate that into heaven. So in the Greek world, this was completely repugnant. It seeped into all of the cultures that had a Greek influence, including Israel, including Judaism. You remember who our Jewish leaders were, the Pharisees Mm -hmm. and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were defined theologically by this concept. They would only study the Torah, the first five books of Moses, but the Sadducees believed there could be no resurrection because of Greek dualism. To a Jewish Sadducee, the idea of the stinky, smelly, degrading, dying body being something that we would want in heaven was as offensive to them as it was to a Greek philosopher uh, that had no idea who Yahweh God was. As a result, that crept into early Christianity. The very first cult that Peter and Paul had to fight was the cult, the group of believers that said Christ was a higher form spirit that embodied the body of an earthly man named Jesus. And at the crucifixion, the spirit went back into heaven while the body of Jesus stayed dead and is still in the grave. So Paul and Peter attacked that in multiple teachings that we're going to get to later. But as a result, you've got an overview of the resurrection I want to go through real quickly just to frame our discussion, because in the mind of Paul, this is why he's teaching it. In the mind of Paul, this is why this is dispositive in kind of the high note that he ends his letter on in terms of his discussion of what it means to be a Christian. And he starts with the idea that it's real. And for those of you with a lifetime in a conservative evangelical church, this seems like a silly place to start. But if you are plugged into culture, this is a critical place to start because even in modern Christianity, North American 21st century Christianity, a shocking number of Christians don't believe in a literal resurrection of Jesus Christ and they don't believe that we are going to be resurrected bodily. The latest Pew Research found almost one-third, one-third of existing Christians do not believe in a literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ or that we are going to have our bodies resurrected. There are pastors who leading major denominational churches who, as a pastor, do not believe in a physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are major seminaries where you can go and learn to be a pastor or a book writer or another college professor in Bible, where the seminary doctrinal statement rejects the physical resurrection of the body of Jesus Christ or a believer's uh, us bodily resurrection uh, at the second coming of Christ. So we hear that in evangelical circles and think, what? you got to be kidding. It is a major issue, but what is significant from the latest Pew Research on this is that it is a growing trend It was worse. It started uh, in the 20th century, became pronounced in the late 60s and 70s, became more pronounced in the 80s and 90s, became more pronounced in the 2000s. And as a result, we've got people that live thinking that, yeah, Christ's spirit is in heaven, but who knows where his body went. And we've got believers thinking when we go to heaven, we become angels or we become, you know, just these spirits floating around and uh, we just kind of live on the clouds. And so there's no idea of a real resurrection of Christ or a real resurrection of our bodies. There's also a rejoining. A rejoining is the cornerstone of Paul's concept of this resurrection because it says our bodies created by God, our fallen now will be rejoined with our spirit in the way Christ or the way God intended uh, since Eve, and so this idea of a rejoining of our bodies and our souls is a cornerstone of what Paul is talking about. But there's also a renewal. It's not just the same broken down bodies that make us ache when we get out of bed or make us hurt when we turn certain directions or make us go see the doctors for certain treatments because our bodies are falling apart and sending us to our deaths early. And Paul says there's going to be a renewal. It's the same body that's going to be instantly identifiable when people see you in heaven, even if they've never met you before but it's going to be a newer body and a different body that we can't quite wrap our brains around. And I'm going to touch on those questions at the very end of the lesson. But finally, it is a reversal. And the reason why Paul's talking about this is it's a reversal of the fall. A new body that's not subject to the same temptations. A new body that's not subject to the same illnesses, a new body that's not subject to the same bad habits or bad emotions or bad character traits or other things, but a total uh, newness uh, in in the reversal of the fall and, and everything about human life that we have struggles with. So with that background, Paul is writing to a church, heavily influenced by Greek dualism, that is increasingly doubting the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and saying things like, it doesn't matter, and then for themselves saying, my body is just going to be thrown into the dirt, my spirit will live, and that's all that matters. And Paul says, no, 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 no. This is a bigger deal than you have ever contemplated. And on your outline, I start chapter 15 with his comments about, this is foundational. Anything else you want to talk about in Christianity, forgiveness, love, spiritual gifts, making people better, helping people, all of that is irrelevant without this doctrine. Paul says to start 1 Corinthians chapter 15, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel, the good news I proclaim to you. You received it, have taken your stand on it. You're also saved by it if you hold this message I proclaim to you, unless you believe for no purpose. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. And then he continues by talking about what he received. When he describes as most important, it's the equivalent in Greek of underlining and exclamation points. He uses a word combination to say it's foundational. It's a big deal. It's the most important thing of anything I've ever taught you. So Paul starts what's about to follow by saying this is as big a deal as anything else you've ever learned as a Christian. This is foundational. Number two, it is scriptural. That's verses three and four. It is scriptural, he says, because Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, if I had not spent a year and a half teaching you the scarlet thread, I'd have to digress here. I don't have to digress because we spent a year and a half looking at Christ in the Old Testament from Genesis 1 all the way up through Malachi. And if you're now wondering where are my CDs, the answer is on my desk at work. So I'm continuing to make progress. I've now got it with the publisher, and we're about to start doing mass duplication over the next week uh, on the subject of getting you a copy of the Scarlet Thread. I'm hoping after Memorial Day you've got yours. Uh, Stay tuned, but it's literally I've got the proof set on my desk waiting for my final approval for then to make your copies. So that's my brief digression, but our point in our outline is that's what Paul's talking about. It's Christ in the Old Testament seen in the angel of the Lord seen in the burning bush, seen in uh, the sacrifice of, of Abraham of Isaac, seen through all those things we talked about with Exodus and the rock and Moses and all the prophets and the Psalms and everything we discussed, Paul gives a one-sentence summary that says everything Christ did was prophesied, and here he's talking about Psalms 110 and Isaiah 52 and 53, specifically prophesied those things about the Messiah dying for sins, buried and raised on the third day. But then he says, this not just in the past, It's not just heavy foundational doctrine. He said, this is historical. And this is my favorite part of 1 Corinthians Corinthians 15 because it's so concise but so deep. He says it's historical. I'll read through it and then we'll talk about it. It says, he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to over 500 brethren at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. Let's talk about these for a second because they're all important. He starts with Peter. Why Peter? Because Peter was the head of the disciples. He was the leader in everything they did or said. He denied Christ three times. He went into hiding, which wasn't a really good leader characteristic, and he's scared for his life just like everybody else and Christ came to him. It's fascinating to me that Christ's first appearance was actually to Mary Magdalene. If you study the Gospels, Mary's first. Did Paul forget about Mary? He did not. But remember, in the culture that he's writing to, what he's making is a legal argument. He's making an argument for the historical verifiability of the reality of who Jesus Christ was. Unfortunately, in their culture, women were not credible eyewitnesses. Women could not testify in court. Women could not be witnesses to a document, to a legal document, to verify somebody's signature. Women could not testify, unfortunately. So Paul, writing to a secular audience in part, uh, skips over Mary and says, Peter saw him and Peter was changed. So the leader who was in hiding, who denied Christ three times, resumes the role once he sees him and is willing to go to his death because of what he saw in the humanity, the reality of Jesus Christ resurrected. But then it says he appeared to the twelve. And this is fascinating to me because like Peter, they were all in hiding. And like Peter, every single one of them except for John died a martyr's death. John died of natural causes in accordance with Christ's prophecy, I believe, all the other disciples were willing to die. Here's the fascinating takeaway. There have been scores of men and women who were willing to die for a cause. That's not shocking. There's not a single recorded person in history, much less a dozen, much less a couple of thousand that were willing to die for what they knew was a lie. And that's the critical point. If they knew Christ was still in the grave, if they knew somebody stole the body, if they knew there was some other explanation other than he rose from the dead, we touched him, we ate with him, we walked with him, there's no way you get 11 guys to voluntarily die a torturous, Painful, excruciating, incomprehensible death, which all 11 of them did, other than John, for what they knew was a lie. So it is a huge point historically of the evidence of what they saw because they were willing to die for what they knew was the truth because they touched him, saw him, talked to him, ate with him, walked with him. Then he says, There's 500. He appeared to 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive. In other words, saying, if you don't believe me, hike down to Galilee and go talk to them because there's 500 people that on a mountainside in Galilee during the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, he appeared to 500 and that served as the core catalyst for the early church in Jerusalem, in Galilee, and then up to Antioch. And so it is fascinating that that group of people who saw Christ became the founding members of the first church that worshipped Jesus Christ as their Savior in Israel, in Galilee, and into Syria. Then, to me, the one that cinches it all, verse 7, he appeared to James, which is his brother. The Gospels make it clear in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that the brothers and sisters of Jesus during his earthly ministry rejected him as crazy. Mother Mary loved him and and stayed close to him, but the brothers and the sisters totally rejected him. He appeared to his brother, who was a total non-believer, had nothing to do with the earthly ministry of Jesus, and after seeing his brother, was so convinced it was in fact his brother that he said, I'm now willing to step up and not only be a follower, I'm going to be a leader. And James became the leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem. It was not Peter. He's a big deal. The leader was James, the brother of Jesus, who was also willing to die a painful martyr's death because of who he believed in his brother, Jesus Christ. Now, one thing you know about siblings is that if somebody shows up and pretends to be your sibling. There's about 30 seconds worth of questions that you can ask to identify, is that your brother? Stuff that nobody else knows. Stuff that nobody else was around when you guys were little kids. Something that nobody else had a conversation about, and whether it's the look in their eye, whether it's the way they walk, whether it's an answer to a question, you can't fool a brother for very long right? If it's a fake and an imposter, the best diagnostic is a brother that knows something about them that nobody else knows. When I was a first month lawyer, just out of law school, just took the bar exam, just started working in Houston, mega Houston law firm, I was confronted for the first time by the best educated, Ivy League educated, most intelligent, best debater agnostics I had ever encountered. And in seconds, they put my faith to shame because they were pushing me on Genesis 1 through 9. They were pushing me on the uh, verifiability of the resurrection. And what I discovered was I had the faith of my grandparents and my parents. And I had a strong faith of my parents and grandparents, but my own faith was totally lacking. Grew up in church my whole life. Could probably discuss Bible better than anybody of my similar situation that hadn't gone to seminary. But I had no faith other than the faith of my parents and grandparents. And so the realization was at that moment, my faith was no different than the faith of someone in the Middle East that believes in the Book of Allah, no different than someone uh, in in the Quran or someone in uh, um, uh, an LDS community that believes in the Book of Mormon. It's just a matter of what you personally believe in and based on faith. And so that drove me to start to study, to figure out why do I believe this issue? Why do I believe what my parents believe? Why do I believe what my grandparents believed? And I had to come to my own ability to say to somebody, this is true because, and I'm not just saying call my parents or call my grandparents because they were still alive at the time. I couldn't do that. To me, the, the <clears throat> argument that solved all the other arguments on the resurrection of Jesus Christ was James, the brother of Jesus. When I understood 1 Corinthians 15, 7, James, his brother, who could not be fooled, not only converted, became the leader, I said, I now get it. I can believe that. That is historically verifiable. The Jewish historians that weren't even Christians verified James, the brother of Jesus, was the leader of the church at Jerusalem, died a painful martyr's death, and and was changed because he didn't believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry. To me, that was a turning point. And then it finally says, the other evidence, he appeared to all the apostles. That's a reference to Acts chapter 1. The apostles are not just another name for the disciples. The disciples is a reference to the 12. The apostles were anybody who saw Jesus alive after his crucifixion. If you saw him, you were called an apostle. This would include the 500 who were on the Sea of Galilee that saw him before his ascension this is a description of those that were there together with him expecting him to stick around and teach for a while and all of a sudden they see him going up into heaven and an angel comes down and explains to him what just happened so it says from Peter to the disciples the 500 to James the apostles they all saw him and Paul's basically saying go talk to them if you don't believe me and then Paul ends by saying he appeared to me one abnormally born Now, that little Greek phrase, abnormally born, you could also translate miscarried, or you could also translate aborted. It's a very graphic term to describe somebody that doesn't feel they were at the right place at the right time, and I think there's two things he's saying. Number one, he was not born in time. He was too young to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is somebody basically saying, if I'd been a little bit older, maybe I would have been called to be one of the 12. But number two, he had a very radically different salvation experience with Jesus Christ than did any of the other disciples or apostles. They knew him during his ministry. They heard him. The Holy Spirit started to work on their heart. If you think of a spiritual second birth, they had a spiritual pregnancy of hearing him and having the Holy Spirit work on their heart that led them to believe in Jesus Christ as as the Messiah. Paul's different. He was looking to kill Christians. He was going to arrest Christians as we studied here on the road to Damascus. Then what happened here was Christ appears to him, and there is no spiritual pregnancy. It's just boom. Christ appears. He's a follower. He goes from a persecutor to a believer and a teacher And it was abnormally second born. And he's saying, that's why I'm different. So I think there's two things going on with him. I just want to conclude with kind of this parentheses on Paul because Paul is humbled. And the older he gets, the more humble he becomes. When he's writing in the first missionary church to the churches of Galatia, I taught you his biography. And his biography was, I'm the best Jew that has ever lived. I followed all the rules. I got a PhD with Gamaliel. I'm the best Jew that ever lived. No one can criticize me for being a second-rate Jew. By the third missionary journey, he says, I am the single worst follower of Jesus Christ that has ever lived. And that's verses 9 and 10. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by God's grace, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not ineffective. However, I worked more than any of them, yet not I, but God's grace that was with me. As he gets older, as we get older, our perceptions of ourselves ought to decrease. Our perceptions of God ought to increase. If you don't find that going forward in your lives, it is probably a reflection of where you are in your spiritual maturity because Paul, as an example for us, becomes more and more humble. I'm going to show you even more humility in a couple of months when we get to his prison epistles as he's in prison writing letters to the churches he founded his humility becomes even more profound. But here in the third missionary journey, that's pretty humble. Now, Paul tackles this issue of the implications of a denial. So he says this is foundation. This goes all the way back to Moses writing Genesis Exodus all the way through the, uh, the, the psalmist and the prophets. And it's historical with people still alive today. But he says, you want to be philosophical Let's talk about philosophy. Let's discuss the hypothetical alternative. If you doubter, you skeptic are right, and Christ is not resurrected, and your body's not going to be resurrected. Let's talk about what that looks like. He says, number one, then Christ would definitely not be risen if you cannot have a physical resurrection. He says in verses 12 through 15, same chapter, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our proclamation is without foundation. So is your faith. In addition, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we've testified about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. So he ends the same way I put in bold, that if you've got any basis for believing Christ was raised, you've got to recognize that Christ has the ability to raise somebody from the dead, raise a body. His inference is if he did it with Christ, he can do it with you. So you can't discount a bodily resurrection by claiming it's a one-off with Jesus because he was special. Paul's saying, "Uh uh-uh, his resurrection is the foundation of our resurrection. Then he says in the second point in here, I put on your outline, our preaching about the good news of Christ would be meaningless. If he didn't raise from the dead, he's no different than any other great philosopher in the dead. He's no different than Confucius who's dead, than Buddha who's dead, than Mohammed whose grave is still in Medina and visited by a couple of million people a year. He's just like some philosopher that's dead. So our preaching becomes completely meaningless. But our faith at this point becomes meaningless one of the greatest lessons on faith I ever learned was not in church. The greatest lesson in faith I learned was a freshman in college when I went on a college debate trip to the University of Utah. We flew into Salt Lake City on a Thursday. We didn't have to be anywhere till dinner, so our coach said, go do whatever you want to downtown. So all of us good Baylor boys went to the Mormon temple. And they've got a visitor center, and you can go tour the Mormon temple and all the little visitor center and learn about the golden tablets and learn about Joseph Smith and learn about Brigham Young and learn about Salt Lake City. And we had the sweetest lady that gave us a tour. And I finished that tour and listened to her story and listened to her faith, and I thought that has got to be one of the most faithful women I have ever encountered in my whole life. She was more faithful than 99.999% of the people I'd grown up as a preacher's kid in church my whole life. And my lesson on faith is not the intensity about which you believe something. It's the basis upon which you believe something. And so you can have the most intense faith of any person on the planet earth, and if it's misguided, it is as worthless as it can be. And Paul's point here is if Christ has not risen from the dead, if we don't have resurrection bodies, then our faith is completely misplaced, and the amount of our faith is completely worthless. And then finally, he basically says if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then there's a whole bunch of good men who are pathological liars. Paul, Peter, the disciples, the apostles, everybody else proclaiming Jesus Christ as the resurrected Messiah, he says, are a bunch of liars. So if you're going to say that Christ didn't raise from the dead, Paul's saying, come to my face and call me a liar and man up on this because that's what you're doing. Paul's saying, I've seen him in person. I've talked to him. I know he's resurrected. You come and tell me a liar. And we'll have a discussion about why we each believe one's lying and one's telling the truth. So it's Paul throwing down and saying, this is the consequence of your non-belief. This is not a philosophical debate. This is as personal as personal can get. And Paul's saying, if you want to throw down on this, then it's personal to my character. It's personal to my veracity. It's personal to the veracity of everybody else who's seen him in his preaching. So be careful. He then goes into a personal consequence of denial. So he says this is not just a theological, philosophical debate. This impacts how you live, how you hope, and how you fear. This is verses 16 through 19, and I also grabbed verse 32 because this is a really long passage. He's got a lot of examples, a lot of historical uh, descriptions you can go read back on your own. I'm condensing into a short little lesson, so I've had to grab some different verses, but they're all in the same context. And the first point is, if there's no bodily resurrection, we have no hope of becoming better. We have no hope of conquering sin. He says, verses 16, for if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still, you could insert the word stuck in your sins. When the Greek phrase is still in your sins, it's the same Greek word for still in a hole, still in a pit, still in something that you can't get out of. You could say still in debt, whatever the the little Greek phrase is, stuck in something, mired in something. It's the same phraseology. So his description is, you think you can be better in being less self-centered. You think you can be better in being more honest. You think you can be better in not doing something you don't want to do. Fill in the blank. He's saying you've got no hope for a better you if there's not the ability to have a bodily resurrection. Why would that be true? Because if there's no bodily resurrection, if Jesus Christ, through the power of God Almighty, doesn't have the ability to conquer his own body, then how can he conquer your body? How can the Holy Spirit inside of you make you less likely to be self-centered, less likely to die, less likely to drink yourself to early death, or whatever the situation may be for you, if Christ did not have the ability through the power of God Almighty to conquer all aspects of physicality, then there's no ability through his power in you to conquer your physicality. So he's saying this goes to the core of you trying to be the better you. The only way that's possible is the power that got Jesus as a human out of the grave and put Jesus Christ at the right hand of God was the same power that gives you the ability to be better, not of yourself, but through God. Second point, former believers would be eternally perished. His next point is, therefore, those who've fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. He's really pulling the emotional strings here because what he's basically saying is, you want to see mama and daddy again? You want to see your grandparents again? Your hope in rejoining with your loved ones is predicated on the reality of Jesus Christ's resurrection. If he's not resurrected, why is mama, daddy, and grandma, and granddad going to be resurrected? To believe in seeing them again, you got to believe in seeing Jesus Christ again, so it's another interrelated issue. He then says our beliefs, our entire religious system falls apart. He says in verse 19, if we've put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. So he's basically saying if our whole life, is about Jesus Christ as a great man or a great philosopher. He says people ought to feel really, really sorry for us because that's nothing to get excited about. That's nothing to base life on. That's nothing to change habits about. That's nothing to be a better parent, a better husband or wife, a better anything about. If we can't put our hope in a better life now through him because of his promise of our resurrected state, then there's no point. And then he concludes by saying our lives, everything we do is meaningless. He ends in verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let's party. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He's saying if all this is a lie, let's go play golf. Let's eat as much as we can. Let's get really, really drunk to uh, pacify the pain of all the rest of life because we're going to die and there's no hope for any of us. That's the implications of nihilism. Nihilism is the philosophy that everything is worthless. It was a philosophical cornerstone of the early 20th century. It started World War I. Because if nihilism is none of this matters, it's only this life, then having the horror of the trench warfare of World War I wasn't any big deal it then culminated as the philosophical corner piece of Nazi Germany. The way the final solution becomes philosophically palatable is if your worldview is about resources, food and land. And that was the whole concept of the Jews or the Germans and wanting to get rid of the Jews, it was food and land. And so the corner piece of that was nihilism, and Paul is saying here two centuries earlier the exact same thing. If your philosophy is there's nothing other than this life, Christ was not resurrected from the dead, it's just something for us to intellectually assent to and be better people, he said, then you've got nothing. Do whatever you want. Be self-centered. Party, because we're all going to die. Paul is saying that's bankrupt. In the 20th century, we've seen that's bankrupt. And uh, it's it's very, very profound that Paul knew that as well in his broken Roman culture as we saw in the 20th century. Now, we end with this idea of what I called resurrection questions. Paul finishes 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, at this point, you want to know details. You want to know what does your resurrection body look like? You want to know how does it work? If, if Moses' body is now dust, how does that get resurrected? If a body cannot be found because it was blown up or burned in a fire and there's not even dust, how does that get resurrected? And what does it look like? What can I do? Can I run? Can I play golf? Can I have sex? Can I do all these things? We got a million questions about our resurrected body and we're dying to know. And it's worse for us than it is for them because we're a more more, uh, inquisitive, educated society. So in the 21st century, our intellectual itch on this is off the chart. Paul says, I'm going to give you all you need to know. And he doesn't go into this depth, but I've commented before on the issue of heaven that I believe the reason the Bible does not go more detail into what exactly heaven is like and exactly what's our resurrected body like. If we knew how much better our resurrected body is than our earthly human body today, there would be a massive increase in suicide as people sought ways to get rid of this terrible body in its fallen state for the resurrected body in its glorious state. Paul gives us some background. He says, don't get hung up on your body right now and thinking it's smelly, stinky, breaking down and dying. Think of it in terms of the rest of God's creation. He says in verses 35 and 36, but some will say, how are the dead raised? How does it happen? What kind of body will they have when they come? Idiot, he says, foolish one. What you sow does not come to life until it dies. And as for what you sow, you're not sowing the future body, but only a seed, perhaps a wheat or another grain. He goes on to explain when you put the wheat seed in the ground or the cotton seed or the corn seed, what comes up is radically different. It is the same thing, but what you see secondarily is not what you see initially when you put it into the ground in its dead state. The wheat is dead the, the, as a seed. The corn is dead. It gets into the seed, you water it, it springs to life, and out of it comes something different. Paul says that's a dissolution of the one thing in order to create something better and greater. Second point, there's going to be a difference. While it is going to be identifiable, while we're going to have physical bodies in heaven, while you're going to be able to know them just like the disciples knew Moses and knew Elijah on the amount of Transfiguration when they were with Christ and, and the leadership of the disciples saw that. Just like Jesus was identifiable in his resurrected state for those that may not have seen him during his earthly ministry, they instantly knew who he was in his resurrected state. Paul says in verse 40, There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. Uh, then he goes on to say there's a splendor of the sun, there's a splendor of the moon, there's another of the stars. So he basically says, just like in God's creation, you've got a difference between uh, animals and fish. You've got a difference between birds and worms. You've got a difference between the sun and the moon. They're all part of God's creation. He says, you've got a different form, even though it's going to be recognizable. Then he says there's going to be a change. He says uh, at the end of verses 42 through 52, he starts drawing these descriptions between earthly body and heavenly body. One, sown in corruption. The other, raised in incorruption. In other words, it doesn't get sick. One in dishonor, meaning it sins. Second, raised in glory, meaning it doesn't sin. Next, one sown in weakness, self-centered, lying, cheating, angry, all kinds of things. New one, raised in uh, power, so it doesn't do those things sown in a natural body, raised in a spiritual body, just as we have borne the image of the man made in dust, we will also bear the image of the heavenly man. Description of Christ resurrected. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. Uh, Great passage. I've heard it read in the funerals of my grandparents. It'll be spoken in my parents' funeral It'll be spoken in my funeral. It's raised in all the funerals because it's a great passage about what's coming and the change that's going to happen in our bodies. And then Paul ends by saying it's going to be victorious. He says at the very end of 54, 55, 56, when this corruptible human body is clothed with incorruptibility, in other words, when we get changed in heaven, this mortal body is clothed with immorality, Immortality, then the saying that is written, it will take place. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying we win. That's why that's read at the funerals. That's why funerals should not be sad, even though we miss them, even though we long to be with them again. He's saying this is victorious and this is the greatest theme of any funeral ever preached because Christ's victory over death guarantees our victory over death. So if you don't believe you're going to see them again, you're saying Christ wasn't raised. If you believe Christ was raised, then why are you hung up about not seeing them again? Paul's saying there's total victory here. Now, I've saved some time to give some application. Because what I basically did is Easter two weeks after Easter, right? You guys heard a different version of the Easter message two weeks after Easter. So I got to apply this because there's a big issue about how do you apply this because it's more than motivation to study apologetics and the history of our faith. It's more than just an understanding of what happens when I'm dying or when somebody I love has died. There's some pretty intense application, The first application is how we view everybody around us in the use of our spiritual gifts. I backed up two weeks ago, and I did spiritual gifts. I tried to motivate you all to take a test. I told you the love chapters there are not to love on your spouse or love on your kids, but to use your spiritual gifts and love on people that need to be loved on. Our spiritual gifts is for the body of Christ and for the non-believers to come to the body of Christ. There's a great application point here, and it comes out of one of my favorite guys in history named C.S. Lewis. He wrote a really tiny book called The Weight of Glory, and he addresses this issue, which is how do I live in light of 1 Corinthians 15? I know it's foundational. I know it's historically spiritual, scriptural. I know it's historically verifiable. I know it's the essence for how I think about life and I live my life, what do I do next? Tell me what I do next. He answers this uh, at the very end of his book. I'm just going to read you one little page because uh, it's, it's fascinating. Lewis says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of those whose souls are immortal. To remember that the dullest and most interesting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw him or her now, you would strongly be tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption in someone else, such as if you met them now, it would only be in a nightmare. All day long, we are all, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these two ultimate destinations." It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities based upon our immortal souls in a still mortal body that it is with the awe of circumspection and proper perspective to them that we should all conduct our daily dealings with one another in all friendships, in all relationships, in all love, in all that we play, in all of our politics. Remember, there are no ordinary people. You in your life have never spoken to a mere mortal. If that's not motivation to use your spiritual gifts, we got to talk. Everybody is immortal. Where are you going to allow them to spend that immortality? Do you allow them to spend that immortality with Jesus Christ because of what you say to them or how you explain life to them? Or you just shrug your shoulders and say, they're going to do what they're going to do. I can't change their mind and allow them to live their immortality in the worst nightmare and the worst torment of separation the human mind could ever possibly contemplate. Incredible motivation. Last point is for me purely personal. Uh, and the last point... First one is C.S. Lewis, we got to live with the perspective of everybody else's immortal souls. Number two is every day is Easter. Every day is Easter. I'll tell you why that's a big deal for me. I told you about my first month in the practice of law. It was great for the practice of law. I was finally doing what I wanted to be doing. Spiritually, it was a disaster because my faith was rocked to its core. I could not answer questions about Genesis. I could not defend the Gospels. I could not... Mm-hmm come close to defending Romans, and Revelation was an embarrassment, right? So I was in a heap of trouble. I could not get better really quick. In other words, there wasn't enough time to read all the books I needed to read. I could talk to my dad, but he couldn't give me, you know, a lifetime, a seminary, and a phone call, right? So I called up my buddy Mark. Mark had been my friend since college. Mark is now one of my law partners in Dallas, He's been a friend of mine since I was 16 years old. We knew each other in high school, went to college together, on the debate team together, went to law school together. Dear, dear friend. And I mentioned to him when I was encountering, because he was one year ahead of me, and he'd been working for one year and one month. I'd been working for one year. I said, Buddy, how does your faith survive in a hostile legal world that mocks you for going to church on Sunday? And his answer was, Remember, every day's Easter. And I'm like, What? He's like, Every day's Easter. And I said, what are you talking about? I'm like, buddy, that's the dumbest thing you could possibly say to me. I I want a book I can read. I want something I can do. I want a class I can take. He said, no, every day is Easter. So he starts talking to me about it. He starts explaining what he means. And when we finish the conversation, he gives me a poem that I've since done some research on and try to figure out where this came from. And from my research, we can't figure out who wrote this, but it's been around for a long time. But I'll read it to you. I'll pop it up on the screen. It explains what I'm trying to explain. He says, Easter comes, but once a year, so many people say, but to a person saved from sin, it's Easter every day. A man, when saved or born again, his life to Christ will give, and as a newborn babe in Christ, he's just begun to live. I am the resurrection, life, the Savior one day said, and he, believing my word, shall live, though he be dead. And that well-known apostle Paul and Philippi made plain, for me to live is Jesus Christ, for me to die is gain. So in the blood of Christ, our Lord redeems a soul from sin. Every day is Easter for Jesus lives within. My buddy's explanation was you have the ability to defend your faith without going to seminary, without reading a new book, without understanding what's going on because Jesus Christ has already changed you. You're not the same kid you were years ago. You're not the same person in terms of how you think. You're a different guy, and the change that is in you, you didn't create. The Holy Spirit created it. So my buddy said, when you wake up every day and say, every day is Easter, you wake up every day saying, I don't have all the answers. I don't know how Jesus Christ got resurrected, but I know I'm changed. I don't have every answer to every problem because I didn't go to seminary, but I know he takes care of me. And at the end of the day, if every day is Easter, the motivation is I'm changed. Therefore, through the Holy Spirit, those around me can be changed. My spouse, my kids, my coworkers, my law firm, my ministries that I'm involved in, everything can be changed, not through me, But through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Easter is an awesome day. But if Easter's not every day, we're not living Christ as Christ wants us to live. Now, do you understand why 1 Corinthians 15 is my favorite book in the entire Bible? It's huge. We're going to continue through the month of June, life and teaching of Paul. We're going to get into 2 Corinthians. I'm probably going to do two, maybe three weeks on 2 Corinthians. I don't think I'll stretch it to four. And then while he's in Ephesus, he's going to continue to write letters. So we're going to go into the other letters that Paul is going to write while he's in Ephesus. And over the summer, we're going to tackle that little bitty, simple book to understand, Romans. So after Memorial Day, if you're gone next weekend, come back for the summer because we're going to continue to study the life and teaching of Paul. Uh, and if you've liked our study so far, it's going to get even better then. So stay with us. It's some good stuff. Uh, if you've got any questions after class about First Corinthians, remember our expert in class, my dad. Talk to him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come and study your word for these moments. We thank you for First Corinthians 15 for the historical verifiability of our faith, for giving us an Old Testament that for a millennium told us the Messiah was coming, for a life that has changed, that we can have the hope of seeing our loved ones again, that we can live in hope that the sickness and the disease and the aches and the pains that we go through now are not the life that you've called us to be, but a life that you've called us to be better through and out of with the eternal hope of our resurrected body. We thank you through the power that all of this is possible, and that is the power of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Lead us and guide us to use our spiritual gifts this week as we go about living life with every day this week being Easter. Through Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank y'all. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. Online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.